Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way. This is a podcast for serious writers who want to develop their skills in artistry and stand out in a crowded industry by taking intelligent, creative risks. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I hold a PhD in literature. I'm the author of uh, numerous books, and I take a very analytical approach to art making, emphasizing both efficiency and experimentation. Please consider doing me a favor and pre-ordering my new book uh, from Coach House Books, The National Gallery. Uh, it contains sonnets for Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, elegies in the manner of Rilke, but for a dead iPhone, uh, and other strange missives from yours truly, the poet laureate of hell. So go to thenationalgallery.ca for more information. That's thenationalgallery.ca. Thanks. You're about here the second part of a two-part interview with uh, Darren Ridgely of Parallel Prairies, the co-editor of the Parallel Prairies anthology alongside uh, Adam Petrash. Uh, and Darren Ridgely, uh, in the first part of the interview, if you go to writingtherongway.com, you can find the first part of the interview. Uh, and he discusses uh, various topics, takes questions from a audience at the University of Winnipeg, uh, my intro uh, creative writing students. Uh, in this part of the interview, he takes some more questions and answers sort of more, more, you know, discusses editing and writing in a bit more detail uh, and with a bit more focus. And we start with sort of really diving deep into a particular story that uh, Darren himself wrote, uh, which is in uh, the anthology Parallel Prairies. So I really suggest that you get a copy of Parallel Prairies. Uh, uh, it's a great little anthology. It's got a lot of you know good stuff in it. I've got a story in it. Uh, if you want to read, you know some of my my work, you know if you like my work. Uh, if you don't like my work, there's other people with great stories in it. Smbico has a really great story in it. Uh, Chadwick Genther has a story in there. Um, Darren Ridgely, as I say. Uh, is the one we're talking to in this podcast. He's got a story in there that we're going to discuss in some detail in this class, in this podcast, and, and in that class when he was visiting. Um, and that's a really great story too. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff in that Parallel Prairies anthology, so I highly recommend it. And I also recommend uh, another anthology by the same publisher, um, Keith Cadieu and Dustin Gerhardt uh, edited. Uh, the Shadow of a Porridge in Maine, which, again, I'm also in that anthology. Uh, and uh, the editor of that anthology, Keith Cadieu, has work in The Parallel Praise as well, one of Keith's best stories. Um, uh, those two anthologies have two of Keith's you know, best stories. And anyway, great anthologies. I recommend them both highly. Uh, enjoy the interview. Can you just, first off, tell us a little bit about like where the story idea came from? Yeah, um, my mother's side of the family is full of paranormal encounters, and this story is based on uh, a st story that my grandfather would tell about an encounter that he had, where he was living in Alonsa, Manitoba, and he was kind of walking down the highway with his friends when he was a kid, and they saw this... Um, solid black ram standing around on the side of the road and they thought it was just some lost livestock from one of the area farms and they went to go run it down and get a hold of it and they chased it into an old utility shed that only had one door in and out and when they got into the shed after it it was not there just vanished without a trace and so I took that image of chasing this you know it's a stark image right you have a, a Manitoban field maybe golden in color you have this uh, black wooled ram just 
booking it while somebody chases after it across the field, and that led to this story eventually. And so can you also just maybe describe, in case you know somebody hasn't read it yet, like what the nutshell plot of the story is? The nutshell plot is that a woman drives back to her hometown of Alonza because she's heard that her sister has become gravely ill and wants to see her. Uh, she... Go, she kind of rolls her eyes at the whole thing because she thinks that they're just being overdramatic and, and you know, her her younger sister has broken her leg and is treating it like it's a like she's in palliative care over it now. After meeting with her in a bedroom in the house, she's told that um, that something is after her, that something is going to come after her, and is reminded of an encounter that they had with a mysterious man in their childhood who injured. Uh, the main character, Dawn, and did something to the younger sister that was unseen. Um, So when Dawn uh, is told that she can summon this man with a a song that kids in in school used to sing when they were little, he appears before her and she discovers that he is in fact a demon who trades in the souls of children, which he believes is an untapped market. I love the untapped market. Uh, it's an untapped market. Nobody goes after children because they're they're considered to be innocents. They can't go to hell. And he has created this layered bureaucracy over it so that he can justifiably buy a soul from a child just so long as he gives them an out in adulthood, which takes the form of this foot race contest that they can either win or lose in order to keep their soul. Now, uh, Dawn's sister cannot run the race because she has a, a broken leg, and it's at this point that you know, this demon is coming to collect in a very shrewd maneuver. Don agrees to take over the contract and run the race on behalf of her sister, chases the ram, loses, uh, just barely misses it inside of the shed, slams into the shed, the door locks behind her, she's instantly transported to hell. Now, uh, there's a lot of things I think are interesting in this story, and, and people can jump in with questions at any point, but I want to start with, like, the start of this story, because I think an important thing that people are always, again, a writer always has to consider in editing is how to start a story. Mm-hmm. So sometimes people have an idea that just, you know, a very strong idea before they start writing about how to start a story, and other times, you know, it's a thing that comes and people are searching for it. So your, your start is... So the story, your story begins, Dawn cursed as she struck one of the many potholes that dotted westbound Route 50. She was coming back, and mom's urging. She didn't plan on staying any longer than she had to. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that start, and like why you started in that particular way, or what you were thinking with that beginning? Uh, so I'm from Killarney, Manitoba, which is about two and a half hours southwest of Winnipeg. I specify that because <coughs> to know that the place exists. Um, and coming home for me is always marked by hitting a really crappy stretch of highway. Uh, I know that I'm getting close to Killarney because the highway turns to absolute shit in the last two kilometers before Killarney. And so, yeah, coming home means wham, wham, wham on your axle. And the other thing that's interesting to me about it is I think one way that works really well as a start is it moves you really quickly into... um, like where they are, like so. I I think a useful technique in short stories, especially, is you know you start with like the character's name, Dawn. <laughs> First word is like here's the character's name. Here's who the character that is the story is about. This is who they are. Here's where they are roughly. Um, you you know you don't say the town until the second paragraph, but in the second paragraph you say exactly where they are. 
you know, she's less than 10 kilometers out of Valonsa. She's going into Valonsa. She's on, you know, this Route 50, right? Then you say in the second sentence, why? You know, she is coming back and mom's urging. We don't know exactly what the reason is, but we know, like, in that sentence, we know, okay, she doesn't live here. She's coming back here. This is, you know, clearly where she used to live. And then at mom's urging. Well, she doesn't necessarily want to be here. So we don't know what the conflict is yet, but it is moving us towards, like, attention. It's setting up attention. It's moving us towards a conflict. Um, she didn't plan on staying in longer than she had to. And now, in the third sense, you know, we're exacerbating the conflict. You know, uh, she's coming back most urging, and then, you know, moreover, she, you know, again, more and more, she doesn't want to be here. She doesn't want to be here. Um, uh, so then we, you know, eventually we're going to move into this much greater conflict. Uh, but I think, like, it's a really nice strategy that uh, is especially useful in a, in a, a longer work, like a long short story or a novel, to, like, just establish these smaller tensions that are going to keep people reading. Uh, I've, I've read, heard it called micro-tension, uh, but I forget who, who says that. But uh, this, like, these little micro-tensions that kind of are, it's moving us forward in the paragraph or on the page, and, you know, even if we don't know exactly what our conflict is yet. Um, and then you've got you know, her stopping and talk, seeing her dad. So that's like the next scene is um, more or less uh, her seeing her dad. And, and she walks into a diner and you've got like a little description there. She opened the rickety storm door, separating the patronage from the dust-ridden wind. The smell of grease hit her first, but it soon blended with the stink of sweat-stained flannel as the room filled with aging farmers in for a bite after a morning's work. Just like every other town she'd ever visited in this province. Yeah. Now I flag that because I grew up in a small town. And, you know, small towns, they always have this place people go to get coffee. Like, you know, they work in the morning for a while. They get up early, they work in the morning, and they go have, like, a leisurely, you know, coffee and, you know, late second breakfast sometimes or mm -hmm. late breakfast. Um, and that's very, you know, it's a nice little piece of scene dressing in that sense, of like a setting, like, this town up a little bit. Um, it's doing a lot of work in a couple there's a couple like things I think are worth noting about it, but one just basic question I have is, um, I think in a, something that a writer always has to decide is like, what do they describe, you know, like more fully than other things? Like, what details do you focus on and describe? So, like, how, how do you like think about that? Maybe in a first draft you're just doing it instinctively, but like in, in an editing where you're going through and you're trying to like maybe eliminate clutter or just figure out where you want to emphasize or de-emphasize like how do you what do you do to like make decisions about stuff like that um i found that i was never ever good at scene dressing in the sense of really lingering over furniture or wall hangings or color on the walls and things like that and what i find i do is if there's an environment that i want to portray i go to sensory experience so i talk about scent here um and and to talk about the indoors versus the wind, there's sort of an air quality to it. And everyone who read that part, who's from a small town, may not have pictured exactly what I did in that restaurant, but they pictured the one that they know, and each of them is as authentic as the other because they have those commonalities. They have the same kind of patrons. They, have, they all know the place when I describe it in sensory terms because I'm deliberately uh, calling up their sense memory of those kinds of places. And when I do that, I don't have to talk about what exactly the material of the tabletops are because they do that work for you. 
Sure, yeah. And, and the other thing that's just subtly happening, I think, that maybe is um, harder to see on a first read is you're setting up a location that you're going to return to, right? Like that's going to be a um, significant place. That's where she goes to call this um, mm -hmm. uh, demon. And then he appears in a booth and, you know, uh, she, you know, we're told she, he looks normal, uh, which is kind of freaking her out. <laughs> like, you know, it, it's an, it's a neat, um, you, you got to, on the next page, you have a thing where she pulls up, she, she pulls up a red vinyl covered chair, the back of it split open and took a seat across from her, her dad. And again, you've got a nice little sort of detail there. Um, do you ever like think about like what I'm going to describe in these scenes when you are thinking about that kind of dressing, or is it just the thing that jumped out at you maybe when you were in a place? It, it's yeah, it, it's just a it's a distinct detail of this kind of a place where things are just kind of grubby and have never been fixed, and that's a very for the chair to just not be right is a, is a very simple thing to do. I can't remember if that was in first draft or second, but it was probably a thing where I tend to breeze through these kinds of scenes and then go back and go, okay, where are the details? And then are you looking for, like, to add detail? Yeah, uh, I'm looking to add detail, because I do tend to breeze right through and focus mostly on, uh, you know, I'll say the two characters are in a kitchen talking, but I never describe it. And then, in the, and then when I go back to the scene, I go, okay, I haven't really talked about what this place looks like or what's going on in it, and I do that after the fact. Because those are, you don't really describe a lot of that in dialogue. So I get the dialogue down because what the characters are doing and talking about and where they're headed next is kind of the important thing to me. And the detail stuff is stuff that you, you should have but not obsess about. Otherwise, you're getting into the kind of George R. R. Martin territory where you're describing every like herb that's on the chicken, and you don't need to do that. Just say that there's chicken. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess unless that's your style, right? Yeah. Like Nosgard, I guess, does right. that kind of thing. But like some people make whole lives. You know, Proust will talk about a cookie for five pages yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, like it's it, you know that's a very certain type of writing that mm -hmm. you know maybe is not. Um, know what you yeah. want to do exactly yeah. it's going to cut your scene momentum for it's example for, for, for exactly yeah exactly oh you mentioned about like the scene and how you use senses to kind of relate to that mm -hmm. um it's weird because i well not weird but i was taught that scenes are like you always have to describe them which i guess is not true you can unless it's important right like you don't always have to have the scene the environment in your writing is it's not important to the writing. You don't always have to have the environment in your writing. If you if you looked at a lot of the stuff that I've had published, I rarely ever really linger over the environment in detail. Okay. Um, it, it's one of those things where you're going to read one book where they really describe every room in full detail, and, you, and that's fine. You like reading that book, and then the next person doesn't do it, the next book doesn't do it, and you'll, you'll like that too. If, if you're doing it right, then it's fine to do either way. But if you're just using all this detail for the sake of, sake of adding to the word count, then it'll show. So you know? do it with purpose. Yeah. Words. If it has no purpose, then exactly. it shouldn't be there. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. One thing that I always have to do in drafts, just I, you were talking about the smell, and like one thing I, I don't have a very good sense of smell. I can barely smell anything. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I always have to do in drafts is like go back and describe how things smell every yeah, now and yeah, again, yeah, yeah. just so that I have some smells. Like <laughs> it's kind of a weird thing to think about, but like you kind of also to some degree get like this sense of, um, um, what you're good at and what you're not good at, and, yeah. and like you, like I don't feel I'm particularly good at description of 
like uh, locations or settings or yeah. scenes, or, or at least it's not my interest so much. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so, like, I find I tend to underdo it in first drafts, which is you know, just something I always have in my head when I'm doing subsequent drafts. Yeah. It's like, okay, remember, it's like, it's almost something like a little mental checklist of like, okay, remember to describe how something smells. Exactly. I'm <laughs> remember, always, you know, to describe something. <laughs> yeah. I'm always way more concerned with what a character is doing, thinking, and saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the room that they're in or the street that they're on is very secondary to me. What I find a lot, but, but sometimes people might have the opposite thing, right? Like, if you find like you are over describing stuff and that's your thing you just go to. Um, maybe on, in a draft you might just scale it back or, to, or, or whatever. If you're, it depends on the genre you're working in, too. If you're writing noir, it really serves you well to linger over things like that. You should really do a lot of environmental description if you're doing something like noir because the whole thing is about creating atmosphere. Yeah, and, and how you inflect a, a description is a big issue, too. Mm-hmm. Like Sometimes a useful technique in revisions is to... F- like describe an object, but how it a character would see it, or like one of the things you often want to think about is like the focalization, what we call focalization, which is sort of like what's the point of view that things are coming, the story is coming to the reader f- through, and sometimes it's very obvious, like it's you know a first person story where somebody's telling you what happened to them, and well it's their point of view always, but other times like like in your story you, you have a third person, but Dawn is the focalization point. You know, like everything's kind of coming at us from her point of view or like how it sort of feels to her, seems to, you know, to be like for her. We're not really getting, we're not technically in her head, but we're not, we're kind of tied to her. Like she's in the scenes all the time. You know, when that guy, um, when the demon uh, knocks her out and then makes the deal with her sister, we don't see that. A deal because she didn't see it, you know. Like, uh, and a mistake that people will make in early drafts often is they they their focalization isn't working. Like they're jumping around too much, uh, and that's that's just a thing to be mindful of. Or they're like their focalization needs to be stronger. Maybe sometimes like that gets tied into the details of the environment. Here's a good example here too. You've got uh, when she gets to talking to her mother. Um, you know, they're arguing about her sister. Before she goes upstairs to, like, see her sister, she's talking to her mother downstairs. And, like, that's the kind of thing I like to point out to people <laughs> because if you think about, again, if, if Dawn is our main character and, you know, the focalization is with her in the sense of, like, we're getting this story kind of with her. Well, uh You've got a very clean structure so far in the story where it's like, okay, Dawn drives into town. Well, what's the first thing? She's going to pass this diner, so she stops and goes in the diner. Then she gets out of the diner. She goes to home. Uh, then she goes in the house. Okay, you'd be on the main floor of the house first. Mom's on the main floor of the house. Sister's got a broken leg upstairs in her room. So she talks to mom before she goes upstairs to the sister. Well, what are they going to talk about? They're going to talk about the sister. Uh, then she goes upstairs and talks to the sister, right? Like... It's the way that the story is moving is how the character is moving through locations. Um, and that's a really useful way to think in, uh, in revisions. Like, do I have, a, like one thing you might note if you're like looking at a first draft sometimes is you'll have a character walk into a room, uh, they'll walk into a house, 
they'll do something in the kitchen, then they'll do something in the entryway. Uh, and it's like, well, no, they would do something in the entryway before they got to the kitchen, <laughs> right? Like, and sometimes like that's a weird thing to think of, but it, it can, in descriptions, it sometimes works that way too. Like if a character is looking at another person, well, they'll see like one thing and then, like if they're looking from their person up and down from their head to their toes for some reason, like, I don't know, they're just looking over their body because they think they're sexy. Mm -hmm. Well, you should describe the things they think they see in the order that they would see them. <laughs> like, you don't describe the eyes and then describe the toes, right? And then describe, like, you know, their uh, arm or whatever. Like, you would, you know, describe it in the sort of way that it would matter to the character. What would the character look at first? Um, you know, if they have a foot fetish, they'll look at the feet first. But if they don't, they're not going to look at the feet first, right? Right. Um, but you also have this line here, like, where she, when she's arguing with her mother, she, she's like, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm her mother, Dawn. I'll always look up after my babies. If it was you, I would. And then she cuts her mother off and tell me to suck it up and move on. Good Lord, Dawn. Are you ever going to get over that? Uh, now, that's an interesting moment because we don't know what they're talking about. And, like, so one of the things you're doing there is setting up Later on, when we find out that the mother, uh, like two pages later, she's talking to her sister upstairs, and she says, um, after the sister reveals that she had, you know, made this deal with this man, uh, she says, "Mom said that I was reckless and irresponsible, and I deserved the pain for being stupid." So, like two pages later, we get like why she was mad at her mom and made that snide comment previously. Again, I think that's a good example of. I don't know if you were doing that in editing or you had done that in the first draft, but it's the kind of thing where it's a good thing to have done to do in editing if you're not doing it is stuff like, okay, here's a little question. We'll get an answer to it soon, but it's going to get like reader interest up a little bit. Uh, and then we'll get it, you know, it doesn't need to structure the whole story, but it's going to like give us, we'll get an answer to it a little bit later. So again, this is, we don't yet know really what the story is about. So we need to like be seeding things that are going to interest us until we get to that kind of bigger question being answered. Like, why is she really, uh, what's really going to happen here? Uh, what's the real like, significance of her coming home and so on? Um, are, now, so are you, are you thinking of those setups and payoffs in drafts, yeah. in, in first draft or in second draft? Like, how, how, when are you really paying attention to your setups and payoffs that way? It, it's kind of in the first draft. I, I do write by the seat of my pants a bit, but I do see where the story is going and think, okay, here's where I can plant a little something that will come up later. Uh, I, I don't like to... I, I did have a bad habit very early on of just putting everything out there at once. And so one of the, the processes for me in learning was to sprinkle the breadcrumbs along in a story and only give you a little piece every other page until we get to the real issue. Um, because it's natural for people. These characters have all had these lives, right? They, they all know what they're talking about. It's us who has to learn. They shouldn't talk about this as if this is the first time they're having this conversation after knowing each other for you know, Don's entire life. The language is all there between them. It's a, the reader has to figure it out over time. The kind of thing that people would screw up in a draft usually is like the escalation aspect of it. So like they'll, they'll, they'll plant the idea that, you know, her mom said something mean to her when she was a kid, she's still mad about it. And mom's like, oh, you're still mad about that? And then they'll get into like, I have to run a race against the devil. And then they'll s reveal later, oh, here's the mean thing mom said. 
well, no, like that doesn't matter anymore. Like no one cares about that anymore, right? Yeah. Like so, you've got you've got it in that nice sort of you know good order of like, okay, here's the little question. You kind of had this question. Now I'm going to answer it. Uh, then you know, will she get the ram? Is the question later? Is this thing real? Uh, again, like you got that escalation upwards. I argue a lot that whatever else people do in a story, if they just are escalating, they can get away with many other bizarre things. <laughs> So like you can flash back, you can flash forward, you can do any sort of breaking of the rules, but the reader will go along with anything as long as they still care. Um, and um, but if they, if you're kind of like, like if they don't care anymore, what mom said, then they're not going to go along with like the long conversation where like we reveal what mom said, you know? Right. You have. Um, Another just just another thing I just want to note with the focalization thing. So you got this line too, a little previously that we were like Nellie, her sister reaches for the remote and shut the TV off. Dawn felt her IQ return to normal levels as the nasal droning of Real Housewives dissipated. Um, that's a nice funny line, but I just want to like point out like again you've got like that focalization like that's how we know we're with Dawn. Like she feels like this is a stupid show that's making her IQ lowered. Um, it's you know. It's that indirect freestyle or that close narration where we're kind of in her point of view, though we're not technically in her head. Um, and it's a nice kind of fun way to describe like how she, f so you're describing how she feels as you're describing a, you know, a thing that's a detail in the room, mm -hmm. like the TV turning off in that case. And that's where like the description, like sometimes if, I think a nice practice or a nice technique in editing is to think, can I make the thing do two things? So like if you've got a piece of description where you're describing like, you know, a, a, an apple, um, can, you know, while you're describing the apple, you also be telling us um, that this, you know, like something else, like something about the person who is looking at the apple or um, that they're, you know, something is happening on some other plot level and, and so on. Do you remember like some of the changes you made in uh, the drafts, like from start to first draft to subsequent drafts? Yeah, I. Um, one of the things that happened in the kind of Great Plains notes stage of it was that they wanted me to do a little more to uh, justify why Don chooses to take over the contract because there was a lot of animosity between the two of them, and I guess in in the earlier draft it wasn't really set up for her to want to make the selfless move. And so I inserted some stuff that establishes that, you know, however however bitter she might be about this and that from the past, that there's a, that she has an instinct to protect her sibling and that she wasn't able to do it before but wants to do it now. And so those things were added in later drafts. Um, I toyed around with the language of how the demon's contract works a bit because I wanted to have it work, but I also wanted it to be needlessly complicated because I kind of subscribed to the notion of devils being litigious dorks who are trying to trick you into believing that the whole thing is legit and that this is above board and that they get to do this. Um, so it's kind of complicated on purpose. Uh, one thing I... Th so did you have... Um, did you always have this setup where... Flashes back. 
like they talk about the deal she made, then it flashes back to a little bit of, it's not a real flashback, but it's like you're going back to- um, When they're discussing what happened in the past. Yeah, when they're discussing what actually happened. She's remembering like some yep. of the things that happened. Um, so you always had that sort of, you always had the scene in a sense where, or her memory of having failed her sister, but she wasn't necessarily framing it in those ways. In That's her right. Mind. She was. She wasn't. See, she wasn't perceiving it as like, oh, I messed this up, or I I failed or whatever. And originally, it was more just that, you know, she tried her best and doesn't feel any guilt about it or anything like that. Sure. And then you you know that if so, in other words, her motivation wasn't present. Her motivation in the draft. was you know it wasn't as firmly as established in the earlier drafts. One of the other things that you do here, which is, a, again, a thing I just would like to point out in, I, is a, in, in the last sort of scene where they go to meet, um, they realize that she's going to have to chase this ram down. So they go to, like, find a place where theoretically she can run well and, like, you know, hoping that the thing, if it appears there, they'll have a better chance. So then they drive to this location together. And again, you get like them driving on the highway. They both grimace as the Crown Vic struck potholes along the highway again. Um, and then you explain a little bit of like why they went there. Um, that's a use. Can you just talk a bit about like that's a, a, what I would call a microstructural thing in the sense of like there you have a paragraph that is opening with here's where they are, uh, and you know the, here's this, the transition, like the scene shift. We're returning to a previously established description or image, this bumpy you know, road full of potholes, is happening again, but this time the sister's with her. So there's like a shift uh, there. Um, I think like one, it's worth noting that a lot is accomplished by just, here's the same thing, but her sister's with her. Like it suggests a lot about, um, you know, this relationship, how it's kind of already even changed you know, in a lot of ways, because, you know, her, she's taken this step of um, agreeing to run the race instead of her sister, or in a sister's stead. Uh, and then you go into describing the pair, the next thing you say is like, well, why they're there. Um, so you gets the paragraph, you then structurally gets into, you know, here's the backstory of how we got to this location again. Uh, I think a lot of times what people will do is the reverse, right? They'll, say, they'll explain like, Here's all the stuff that happened, you know, since before we cut, <laughs> and now here's where they are. Uh, but it's almost rarely a good idea. Like what you're doing there usually is the better idea. Like, <coughs> do you like ever think about those smaller scale, like how those paragraphs are working in those sorts of ways, like how they're flowing? You're, in other words, you're starting the scene in right. a certain way. Right. I, I I really I really use a lot of scene breaks in my writing. I like to skip bits because it feels like too much exposition. Um, if I was going to show the whole thing sequentially, then I'd have to have a whole conversation between the two of them. Oh, boy, where should we go and race the devil? I don't know. Why don't we try down Main Street? No, that's not going to work. Why don't we try? Let's just have them already having figured out, and we can explain the logic of it once they're there. Otherwise, we're adding 300 words of their conversation, and maybe I don't make the word count for my own book. Let's just... Uh, Let's just skip to it, and it can it, it can be summed up better than you it can be walked through. Because, like you say, things have to have an A and a B and a C. Um, so their conversation would have to naturally involve them going through all the options and debating it. Here we just have a break of 
three, four hours maybe, where that's already figured out. Sure. And, and it's a boring conversation to show, kind of. Yeah, I think it's, I think the reason it's boring is the thing that's worth thinking of too. Like it's boring because they've already decided to do it. Yeah. So like the conflict of the story isn't like, will they find the right place to race the devil? Right, 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 right. It's like, will they win the race? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so like, yeah, it comes into play, like where are they going to do it? But it only as far as they, as far as like they've picked a place. So they've got a little bit of strategy. I think what's useful about that opening in two is you're setting up the idea that they're at a disadvantage here in various ways. Like she wasn't, she didn't even know about this thing a day ago. Yeah, really. yeah, yeah. Like she um, uh, isn't the runner her sister was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, of course, like she hasn't you know made the deal with the devil herself in the sense of she hasn't gotten the advantages of having done that, yeah. that she can have to play on. Yeah. Um, so they're trying to like offset, they know they're at a disadvantage, they're trying to offset things. It's a clever way of setting up the fact that she fails. Uh, can you t- talk a bit about like, like why she fails? Because I think the temptation, I think the, the thing people would expect with a story like this and the temptation of a writer with a story like this is to have her win and get the face full of woman. Which, you know, even the title suggests that, oh, you know, she's going to get the fistful of wool. Like, I, I, I love the title of this story because it really suggests that um, by the end, she'll have a fistful of wool mm-hmm. slash will have won this race. And then, you, you know, you, that doesn't occur. Um, can you talk a bit about, like, why you ended up ending the story that way? Um I mean, I ended the story that way for a couple of reasons. One is that I'm working backwards from an anecdote that I wanted to translate into a story, and in the story, my grandfather did not catch the ram. The experience was running into the shed, and it's gone. So that one, I wanted that to be in the conclusion. Uh, the other part of it is that it is, kind of, it is meant to be a, a bittersweet ending because, no, she doesn't win, but she succeeds. The point was to save her sister, and she does that. She takes the fall. But she succeeds in what she's trying to do. Yeah, it, it's an interesting ending, and I think it's a good way to think of how a story could end. Uh, because again, like the conflict, if you really think through the conflict, it seems like the conflict is, oh, I got to check, chase this devil down, uh, or this ram down, and win the race, and so on. Like I'm fighting the devil, deal for the devil for my soul. But you're right. Like by the end of it, and you and the character even kind of briefly notes this. Um, Really, in retrospect, like it's it's a story about how she feels guilty for having failed her sister. Um, she has this animosity between her and her sister. Then she realizes, like, there's this new perspective that she attains, where she thinks back. She sees that really her sister had been looking up to her, had just been trying to, had been jealous of her the way that she later then became jealous of her sister. And so she didn't understand it at first, but then she started to understand it. You, you get this nice perspective shift that she has, and so it really, by the end of the story, you realize, oh, um, she, yeah, she has a sort of bittersweet success. She's done her job as a sister, um, but she's lost, like, this, her soul in, right. in, in that process. Uh, and you do a really beautiful sort of, you know, ending where you're describing... Uh, the other thing you do at the end is, of course, you know, she enters the shed. It's just we're told that immediately she's in hell. Uh, like the shed is now just tonally it transforms in its atmosphere and so on. And then um, 
we understand this is she's in hell now she's somehow just left the world and then there's this knock on the door and then she opens the door to go inside and that's where the story ends as opposed to you know with the temptation I think a lot of people would have of like you know over describing like what hell is like did you ever toy with like describing what happens when she opens the door no because I I wanted to portray it as a um, I mean I guess you could say that this is sensory too that this is not a, this isn't the Dantean hell of uh, fire pits and such and such. As far as we might know, she walks out there and it looks exactly like the world, but it feels different. Uh, it's a place of absolute emotional flatness and um, disconnect. You know, it, it's a place where, like like it says, like she 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 what this it says in there. Maybe it all looks the same. Maybe the sun is still shining. It's just that she doesn't care. Mm-hmm. Everything is reduced to a zero for her. So that is the description of the place. This loneliness. Uh, I think you used the word loneliness at one mm-hmm. point. Like this, you know, hell as being a sort of weird, almost you know, depression uh, type uh, experience. Uh, are there any other kind of questions about this particular story or about you know? process of the story or just general questions for Darren about anything? Um, I, I guess I could ask a question. So um, you used the ram in the story like because that connected you mm-hmm. to your grandfather. Like, <clears throat> Was there any, like, do you find that you, other characters in your stories, like, are ge- they generally pulled from, like, maybe somebody that you know or do you do that a lot or is that... Oh, oh for sure. Um, I... There are a lot of archetypes, not barely specific people in the story, but like Don's dad is just every 55-year-old farmer who hangs out at the restaurant all day that I ever knew growing up. It's a personality that I know, um, kind of easygoing and, and practical, things like that. I don't really like to model characters on exact people too often because what happens is everybody that you know starts thinking you're doing that anyway. Everybody thinks that they're in your story. They're every, everybody think my mom asks me every single time, oh, is this me? Like every story I write. No, it's not you, Mom. <laughs> it's shocking. People will think like the weirdest things are based on like them or the true mm-hmm. stuff or whatever. And then like the Every once in a while, you'll, we will steal something. I got it, like my my wife got a little annoyed once because her dad is always saying, "O M and might I add G," <laughs> and like and so I like put that in a story at one point because <laughs> I just thought it's such a cool, interesting, weird like way to say something. Because mm-hmm. one of my like little rules in editing is like it's it's like my quote unquote rule is like okay if there's anything that I've seen before, I want to try to shift it into something that maybe somebody hasn't seen before. Mm-hmm. So I had OMG in the first draft, and I was like, is there a weirder way to say OMG? <laughs> like, it sounds, like, stupid, but, like, that's what I'm thinking of, like, it's in, when I get to, like, style edits, uh, what I mean when I say, like, I, I feel like the other advantage of kind of looking at structural stuff before you get into, like, stylistic concerns is that once you're into stylistic concerns, like, you know the story works. Like, it is what it is. It works how it works. Maybe, like somebody else could write a better story, but like, that's the story. And so now you can really play around at the language level because you don't have to worry about this other stuff anymore. Like you know that they should be saying something here and now you can start to really mess around with like, what are they saying? Um, and focus on that. Uh, and so like sometimes like, you can just 
almost like, it, but it helps sometimes to just like grab those little, well, here's this weird type of character I would yeah. always see at the coffee shop. Yeah. Or, or I might not take a whole person and transplant them, but I'll take one habit of theirs and put it into a character or I'll, or I'll have them, I don't know, grow the same kind of flower in their garden that so-and-so grows in real life. Just stuff that I recognize, that, but that isn't like hyper-personal. Yeah, but it's maybe super specific, but not yeah. hyper-personal. Some, something that would make the character distinctive in the story without just making it like my uncle. Mm-hmm. But they'll still think it's... Yeah, oh yeah, they'll, they'll still think will, it's your always. uncle, yeah. yeah. Even if like your uncle always wears a trucker hat, mm-hmm. but you described a guy with a Tilly hat, they'll think, oh, that's probably me, because mm-hmm. I wore a Tilly hat that went Right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, uh, thanks uh, very much for talking to us, and... Uh, taking some time with us and for you know letting us and me interrogate your story thanks for making it not as bad as I thought it was going to be based on all those bookmarks (laughs) I flag uh, bookmarks for a lot of reasons but one is just like um, I I often flag things I like but then other times <laughs> See, I don't. I don't have the assumption that editors flag things they like. Yeah. Well, as the story's done, I, I wouldn't. I always like. They'll tell Greg, my friend Gregory. I'll say every time he has a book out and there's a typo in it, I'll notice like every typo in his book, and I'll like, I'll talk to him and I'll, you know, I, I was talking to him about a book he had recently, and, and he's like, I was like, just talking about how I was impressed how few typos were in. Yeah, 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 and yeah. he's like, he's like, were there any? I'm like, there were two. <laughs> like I could tell you exactly where, but I won't. You know. But uh, two is pretty good in a book. Like, as yeah. you know, like, uh, you know, that's another reason just to not read these things. Like, and, and they all have them. They all have them. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully nobody notices them. I once had a guy come I wrote a nonfiction book and I had a guy come up and was like, you spelled my name wrong in this book. And I was like, I, in my head, I was like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, I'll change it if they ever do it again. And in my head, I'm like, he's lucky to have his name in a book. <laughs>